Man, that's a <laughs> pretty stirring testimony. And in, in sharing with us uh, he and Jennifer's sort of story, Kyle demonstrated actually uh, what is a New Testament principle of generosity. And so we'll start right there, 2 Corinthians 9.2. Paul says, For I know your readiness, Corinthians, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying, Your whole region, Achaia, has been ready since last year to give generously, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So swapping testimonies, just like Kyle did now. Um, I know some of us did this week in our uh, Georgetown community group. We shared stories, grandfathers, people we knew from our old hometown, um, family members, others towards us of just generosity, testimonies. Or as Paul does here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we see that testimonies help to cultivate a culture of generosity. So that's sort of a bonus principle of generosity you're getting this morning. All right, that one's for free. We also read here that the zeal, the zeal about what God has done for us and the zeal to be generous to others, it says stirred up most of them. Did you see that? He says most of them. That implies that not all of them were stirred up by this testimony. And so, accordingly, if you weren't stirred up about God's generosity towards you overflowing and generosity towards others, I have the privilege to present to you another testimony this morning, the most reliable of all, and that is God's Word. So let's pray together as we look there. Father, you know, you know this, your church. And so you know that generosity is not a topic we have ever really focused on as a church. Father, I recognize that some here are coming with no knowledge, but they're eager to learn about generosity. Some here come with hurts. Maybe they've bought into, quite literally, promises of healing or prosperity. Or they gave freely to someone who let them down. And others come skeptical to this topic because they have the wisdom and life experience to know what money can do to a person. So we just want to take a moment to acknowledge that all generosity begins with you. That we can only love because you first loved us. We can only give because you first gave to us. You created us in your image. You included us because of Jesus. We get to participate because of the gifts that the Holy Spirit given to us. It's all gift. So we trust you're going to continue to give, including your Holy Spirit now to speak and cut through all the hardness, all the skepticism, all the doubt, and all the bull on this issue. We ask this all in Jesus' name. So last week we started with the generosity of God. Next week we're going to talk about the role that leadership plays in being generous. Because we see here in the example of the early church that leadership played quite quite a role in the process and distribution of generosity. And finally, we're going to look how generosity reproduces, regenerates, and spreads giving everywhere. Today is kind of the practical stuff. Principles to channel this free-flowing generosity that's bubbling over. God has been so generous to us by making us in His image, by including us into His people through Christ, giving us gifts of the Spirit, to participate means generous to others. How do we channel that generosity? So the question before us this morning. 
And I want to start with some other questions, questions of a not-yet-genius in generosity, because that's me. I don't have a testimony quite like Kyle and Jennifer's, uh, but I'm actually open to it. I would say in some ways for the first time in my life, for a long time, like, uh, like Chip Ingram, who's the author of this book all our community groups have been using, Genius of Generosity, Lessons of a Secret Pact Between Two Friends. Now he talks about in this book how he always thought generosity was like Christian grad school. That he would someday join up to that school when he grew enough. And I've kind of always felt that way. Generosity and all its fullness, openness to give whatever I have back to the Lord for His purposes was always kind of down the road. In addition to that, it was always for people who were wealthier. It was for people who maybe had the gift of giving, but not as much for me. Now thankfully, by the grace of God, through the influence especially of my my wife, I've made some significant progress in this area, seeing that generosity is for every person, every Christian, to whom Jesus has been so generous. But I still have a few questions for God about generosity, and I kind of wonder if you have similar questions. So here they are. The biggest question that I have for God is how can I become a cheerful giver? Because sometimes, immediately after I give, I grieve, right? I give, I write the check, I make the transfer, or I just give someone something, and like, oh, 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 <laughs> back in. And that's actually what Paul's talking about when he talks about not reluctantly. It means to be sorrowful after. We're not supposed to give reluctantly. Or sometimes I deliberate. Did I give to the right person, the right amount? Was that a responsible gift or not responsible? I don't know. I'm very analytical. That's my first question. How can I become just a cheerful giver? Secondly, if if it's all about my heart, like so many Christians have told me over the years, if it's all about my heart, then where do I start? I still need a place to start. A third question, does it matter to whom I give? It's really matter to whom I give. Does God have direction for that? Fourthly, as I read the Bible, why is the Old Testament so specific about generosity and the New Testament is so open-ended? As we're going to see here in 2 Corinthians, so open-ended. I think of Galatians 6. You know what Galatians 6 talks about? Paul says, two Christians, share all good things with the one who teaches you. Share all things with the one who teaches you. Now, since I, I am teaching you, I'm your pastor teacher, what does that imply? I mean, if I ask for your car keys after the service, you know, all things, right? I'm just helping you apply God's word. Just go for a little, little joy ride. Or, you know, if, uh, if you find me in your home rummaging through your refrigerator when you get home this week, I'm just helping you be doers of the word, not merely hearers, right? All things. You're, some of you are nervous right now. Like, is he going to show up? We'll see. It's so open-ended. Where are the guidelines? Where are the rules? Why doesn't the, any of the Old Testament rules on giving carry over into the New Testament? And if there is no Old Testament carryover on these rules in the New Testament, why do we talk in the church about things like tithes and offerings each week? See for yourself now if you can spot any Old Testament carryover and what the Apostle Paul is writing the Corinthians about generosity. And thankfully this will be up on the screen. We're going to start with 1 Corinthians 
16, 1 through 3. Because Paul had earlier written to the same church about the same need as he does in 2 Corinthians. So it's appropriate we look here, because he writes to the Corinthians about the same need that a sister church, the same sister church has been experiencing, the church in Jerusalem, who've been experiencing a famine, a lack of food, and in combination with that, they've been experiencing alienation from their families, because they had trusted Jesus. Their Jewish families who hadn't trusted Jesus said, we're done with you. You are no longer one of us. And so there was this double sense in which they were lacking. They needed material provisions. They needed money. So listen to see if, how Paul advises them. Is there any Old Testament-ness to this? Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of the, every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, he wouldn't have to go door to door and ask people. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem, to the sister church in need. Now, if you would turn in your Bibles, you're going to need them this morning, to 2 Corinthians 8, 10 through 15. This will also be up on the screen. In this matter, I give my judgment, again, about being gener- generous to this church. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but you started to desire it as well. So now finish doing it also, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at this time should supply their need so that their abundance, in other words, in the future maybe, may supply your need, that there might be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now skip down to 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency or contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now Paul, as you see here, is making this this passionate, sort of specific and principled appeal for generosity. Did you see any appeal to the time-tested, Old school, Old Testament way. Did you see anything in there? Just one. Chapter 8, verse 15. Where we see, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered a little bit still had no lack. So in other words, God is providing through all of this. So I, I followed the little, the little letter. Might be a number in your Bible. Kind of a little footnote. It's very small print there. And I looked on there, and it says Exodus 16, verse 18. Moses wrote this. Now, so I turn back in the Old Testament to Exodus 16. This is an important letter, by the way, when you're reading God's Word, especially when you're reading the New Testament. Whenever you hear, as it is written, or as it says, take a moment, look at the number of the letter, pause, and look back to what was written back there. That's what I did. As I was studying God's Word, 
I said, whoa, wow, this is Exodus 16. Paul must be thinking about something in God's history, in God's plan, that's taking him back to this. So I looked back once, twice. Then I found myself reading all of Exodus this week, realizing God has a genius master plan for our receiving and giving in response, for our getting and then giving. For our participating in his divine plan for generosity, God has had this master plan from the time he created his people. It's a plan that causes us to grow. It's a plan that keeps us from hoarding. And it's a plan that enables us to participate in divine generosity because grace generates generosity. It's going to end with grace, but I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit. So let me start with this. I want us to grasp this master plan of God for generosity, and I think I can do so by way of grocery shopping. All right, that's what I'm going with. Think about this. Grocery shopping is absolutely work. Unless you live right next to the grocery shop store or you're, or you're single and have lots of time, it's absolute work. It's hard to just show up at Kirk's. First, you have to look around the kitchen and then form the, either a mental or actual list. What am I going to get? How much of it do I need? Now you've got to remember your bags, because none of us want to diss the environment, right? None of us want to be the person who says, yeah, I'll take 13 bags. So everyone looks around, judging us. Got to remember the bags. Remember the cloth bags. So you've got to get those on the way out. Sometimes you forget them. You've got to turn around at the end of your street, get them again. And you're still not there. You're still not at the, even at the grocery store. You've got to get there. You've got to park, which is sometimes a big deal, especially if you have an oversized car. You've got to choose a cart or a basket. Sometimes it's hard to know which to go with. Then you've got to walk around with enough of a plan to end with the freezer section, right? Because you don't want any of that pleasure food melting, right? So now this is the little secret that's in beta testing on our island that I've found out about. It's grocery delivery to your doorstep. Did you know about this? You may not. It's happening underneath our noses uh, with few of us knowing but I've been told about it, and, I, and I, I did some research this week and talked, interviewed an anonymous source on, the, on this uh, who talked to me about this process. She, she delivered this testimony under the condition of anonymity. You order what you want, it's brought to your house, and then the people from the grocery store lay it out on the table. And you get to choose even what's kind of spoiled, what looks good. You could even say, you know what, send that back. And this is the way, apparently, grocery shopping will happen in the future. For those of us who are privileged, even now. Now, imagine for a moment if that was God's provision for us. He delivered food, everything we would need, to our doorstep. You took a tray every morning and every evening. You ate what you could, and you put leftovers and all the plastic stuff outside when you were done. Why can't this work? In fact, it would solve a lot of frustration personally and problems globally. If God just took food and just delivered it to every person, every doorstep. He's powerful enough to do it. Is he not? Would any of us deny that? Those of us who believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead? So he could do it. He loves people. Why doesn't he do it? Reason number one, you would begin to hoard leftovers. All right? You keep a little extra, then a little extra until it rotted, began to stink, and it would be inedible. Right? In fact, the very word in in Hebrew for stuff, for money which purchases stuff, is kesef, which comes from a root word meaning languish. 
So the Hebrews understood early on that to have stuff would mean you'd always want more stuff. Reason number two, God doesn't just bring stuff to our doorstep. You would never grow. You would remain like a baby or an infant, wouldn't you? You'd have food delivered basically right to your mouth, which many of us would enjoy. Don't get me wrong, but you would never leave your house, would you? You would just turn on the television, maybe read a couple books. Even then, you could just get some on your Kindle, right? So you just really never have to leave the house. Nor could you, because that is the only way you know how to eat. So you're essentially, you're like, a, like an infant. It's delivered right to your mouth whenever you need it. So God wants to grow you. His master plan is to grow you, in fact, into his image, in the image of Christ. So the next thing God does is to create some rules to help you grow. He provides you some land. So you work to grow your own food, or you labor to exchange money for food. These rules are set up to help others. So for every five tomatoes you either grow or buy, you have to give one to someone in need, someone who's poor, maybe a single mom who's struggling, maybe a widow, maybe someone you see every, every day on your way to work, or someone who's just asked you for money a lot of times. For every eight chickens you raise or buy, You've got to give one to the person who teaches you about these rules and about the God who gives you generously. All right, so now not only are you working maybe the land that you own, but you, you have to identify who the people in need are. You have to identify these teachers, learn how to drive, learn the roads. You've got to keep a checklist of the rules and make sure you're following these, right? It's cool at first. You do grow. You hoard less until people stop get smiling as much as people in need. Until the thought enters your head, man, why aren't they working as hard as I am to get what they need? Until you're tempted to keep more for yourself, or maybe you start to forget to give away what you have. You keep a little extra. You forget on holidays. After all, I worked hard for all this that I have. It's me. It's all me who's worked for this. Why should I follow some arbitrary rule? I'll just keep it for myself. Forgetting, of course, the land God's given you, the strength he's given you, the very body he's given you. Now at that point, you're on an irreversible course. Law, these rules have turned generosity into obligatory, bitter, even non-existent giving. You're on this course, so God's got to take drastic action to make you generous again. And as we look back to the book of Exodus... And we see God's plan, his master plan for generosity towards his people. This is exactly his plan. It's not just a fable or an illustration. God delivers his people from slavery. People celebrate and sing until they get thirsty and hungry. And they cry. And because they're just mere babes who've just experienced the salvation and deliverance of God, God doesn't chasten them. He just answers their cry. He gives to them generously. He turns bitter water sweet so they can drink it. Immediately after they stop singing. Then immediately after that, he delivers food to their doorstep. Bread called manna. By morning, meat every night. Who would like that diet, by the way? <laughs> I could deal with that. Only work was to go outside and gather it up. You just had to walk outside your door. In fact, God says that this very light work, though, he was testing them. He was preparing them whether they will, quote, walk in my law or not, Exodus 16.4. So even while he's giving generously because they're young in the Lord, 
He's preparing them for something more. Here's what happens. Over time, they do two things. They constantly hoard what God gives them. So it goes rotten. It's inedible over time. They say, they think to themselves, well, if I just get more, I'll be okay. Just in case God doesn't show up tomorrow and provide, I'll get some more, I'll get some more, I'll get some more. It gets rotten. They can't eat it. Secondly, they don't want to leave the nursery. They don't want to leave the crib. He provides this honey-like bread and gives them quail. Up until the time they get to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And they're almost, they don't want to actually go in. They experience this moment where this is so good. I just get from God. This is the good life. At which point, he gives 11 of the 12 tribes land to produce their own food and some rules about what to do with it. Some rules about generosity. I want to talk about some of these rules that we see in the Old Testament because they're important to understand. Why do we see them here? Do we see them now? Are these active for our lives today? So firstly, give periodically. God says, I've given you this land. I've given you fruit to produce out of the labor of your hands. Don't just hoard it for yourself, but give of it periodically. First fruits and last fruits. Whatever the land you worked on produced, the first and best of it was to go to the priest who helped people worship God. We see this in Deuteronomy 18, Leviticus 2. Whatever wasn't gathered, when you went through the field, reaping the harvest, whatever wasn't gathered, wasn't to be stored up, wasn't to be, you weren't supposed to go behind and like, oh, I forgot some space there. Like you're re-harvesting, going around a second time, you're supposed to leave it so that the poor, so that those in need could come behind and gather what was left over. It was a brilliant law that God gave to be generous to people who were in need. And so Leviticus 23-22, listen to this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Go around again. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, I'll take care of you. Don't worry. So give periodically, but also give specifically. God said, here are the two parties to whom you're supposed to give. The priests and the poor. Deuteronomy 18, 1-5. Listen to this. The Levitical priest shall have no portion with Israel. So the priests actually didn't get land. Why? Because they, their work was to help people worship God. They didn't have time to work the land. They didn't have time to make money from this. So why would they have need of it? They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. In other words, they would eat what you brought them. They shall have no inheritance among the brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. This shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether ox or sheep. The first fruits of your grain, of wine and oil, these you're supposed to give to the priest. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord. So, Give periodically, give specifically to the priests and to the poor. Give proportionally, tithes and offerings. So on the one hand, God commanded a straight 10% part of what you made called a tithe to ministering to the Levites. Right, you're supposed to give that to the Levites, to Leviticus 27. But also, there are other tithes for things like yearly festivals. There's an every third year tithe. If you added up all the percentages... It wouldn't just be 10%. It was actually closer to 22%. 
Yeah, I know. Don't worry. I'm not going to issue the call this morning. Everyone, 22%. We're going to go on the 22% campaign. We'll have t-shirts. We're not going to do that. But there are also offerings. This is interesting because there was a straight percentage, but there's also offerings, the quality of which of your offering was based on income. We see this from Leviticus 14. Those who could brought their best land, their best bushel of grain to offering, to offer back to God to atone for their sin, to make up for their sin. Okay? But those who couldn't afford, maybe they only had one or two lambs per year. Those who didn't have many bushels to give away, maybe only one small harvest a year. You could bring your best lamb, have it waved in front of the altar. You can imagine the scene. I think that's why people have felt banners today in worship. Let's go like this. That's what this is from. You wave this in front of the Lord. All right? And then the priest would give it back to you. He would just take one-tenth of your bushel and sacrifice it to him and a couple of pigeons, which is pretty cheap, I guess, back then. So you not only just, if, if you were more wealthy and God prospered you, you would not only give a same percentage, you give up more quality. There would be a greater proportion to how you gave. And finally, the Old Testament called, uh, called people to give sacrificially. It would pinch a little bit. It would pinch a little bit or else it ain't giving. You guys have ever bagged up clothes for Goodwill or for a thrift store? Anyone ever done that before? Right? Does that really pinch when you give? Does it really pinch to give the clothes that kind of just left over? You know you're not going to use anymore. No. It's not really biblical giving unless it pinches a little. And that's a challenge. Here's the deal. For God's people in the Old Testament, the land was to rest every seventh year. That means every seventh year, boom, no money from your crops. No income every seven years. This is like a real rollover policy. <laughs> just realized that. Uh, every seventh year, you get rolled over in an unemployment and just trust God to provide. Debts forgiven every seven years. So if somebody owed you money, they were borrowing money from you, interest, boom, you had to just forgive it every seven years. Every 49 years, not only had to forgive the debt, but you gave all the person's money that they borrowed from you, their land, back to them. What? And here's here's the deal. The, The evidence suggests that no one ever did this. No one ever kept what was called the year of Jubilee every 49 years. I'm going to explain why. Because every, every law I mentioned was done begrudgingly. Every law I mentioned was twisted over time to, to, to help the giver. It was self-advantage. And eventually, people just straight robbed from God. So we read about Malachi 3, the last book of the Old Testament. Before God says enough, he's robbing from me at this point. There was hoarding and resentment to rules, which is irreversible in the human heart. We want more, and if someone tells us to do it, eventually we're going to get bitter about it. You remember my story, right? About the art gallery last week? I saw beauty. I saw goodness. As a 12-year-old, I gave everything in my wallet to an art institute. Ten years, I come back 10 years later, more mature. I'm actually a Christian at that point. You come into the art gallery. They send you into a queue where you give your obligatory contribution, cash or credit card, sir, and bitterness is in my heart. Why? Because there's a law about it now. There's a law about it. So God does something radical. He has to. How is he going to change the human heart to become generous again? Yeah, we've grown a little bit. We've learned more about the character of God. 
But we're so hard. Because over time, we go, we try to obey God, and we do it from our own strength, and we just get resentful towards Him. God does something radical. He gives Himself. The giver becomes a gift. Think about it. Through Jesus Christ, God gave periodically. Romans 5, 6 says that just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He knew when to rush in and be our rescuer. And he did. He gave specifically. He came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Not for those who thought, man, I'm in perfect health. But for those who knew they were sick. Who knew they needed help. He came for such as hopefully us. God gave through Jesus Christ proportionately. He gives up all to give us all. Right? 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though He was rich in fellowship with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Yet for your sake He became poor, losing all that on the cross, so that by His poverty you might become rich. You might be included in all of that. You might be given gifts to serve others. You might have eternal life forever. He gives up all to give us all. And He gave sacrificially. Beyond pinch to propitiation, which is just a fancy word for Jesus endured the wrath, the just wrath of God towards our rebellion so we would never have to. He endured it. He absorbed God's punishment so those who trust Christ would never have to. So He gave periodically. He gave specifically. He gave proportionally. He gave sacrificially. So those who trust Him will be freely forgiven and made right. Not only that, we're given this new and tender heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we are given the Holy Spirit to live inside us, to empower us, to want to be generous when we're tired, when we're weary, when we think, I got nothing more to give. I got this closed fist and my heart is hard. So God helps us by giving us Himself. Doesn't that make you want to be generous? He gives up all to give us all. I hope so. And that's the point. Grace generates what the law cannot. Grace generates what the law cannot. Cheerful giving. Cheerful giving. The law intended to produce all these things, but it just couldn't. Just like the law intended to produce peace, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, but it couldn't. So God gives us Jesus and the Holy Spirit, which produces all the things that the law kind of promised, but never delivered on. All those rules we learned about along the way, we can't follow. But grace, through Christ, generates what the law cannot. Cheerful giving. And we don't get this right away, do we? We have to kind of learn it. A reliance upon grace occurs as the Christian matures, doesn't it? So first, you start out with manna as a Christian. Manna and meat at your doorstep. God's Word's always alive, immediately applicable to life. God is quick to come to the rescue, answer even the smallest of prayers. Remember this? Or maybe you're in this stage now, and that's so awesome, where almost every encounter you have, God is speaking through someone. Virtually everyone you encounter. You're like, oh my gosh, that was for me. I remember a couple years back, I saw a Christian friend outside Kirk's Market, and he was a babe in Christ, a new Christian. And as he saw me, he said, hey man, I just met the coolest person that God totally was speaking to me through them. I, I really think they actually go to church, but I just haven't met them. As I looked inside, I was like, no bro, I'm pretty sure that's just the cashier. Like, they don't go to our church. 
But I understand. This is what he was experiencing. God was using almost every person in his life to say something encouraging to him. And God does this as we're young in Christ. Divine generosity is spoon-fed and one-sided. And we're tempted to stay there and never leave the nursery, never leave the crib. As you keep learning about how to respond to God's goodness, he gives you commands and laws to show you how to do so. In short, obedience. And as you obey faithfully and you start to get used to it, you start to even do well at it, Paul warns us in Galatians 3.3, after beginning with the Spirit, have you tried to follow God's law by your own flesh, by your own strength? You began with relying on me as a father, relying on the Holy Spirit to obey. Have you now started just to rely on your own strength? Everyone does. At some point in the Christian life, you will. Such obedience on our own strength calcifies the heart, makes it rock hard, such that we have one of three results. We feel a superiority to others. You hear in your Bible study, well, that's not how you're supposed to give. <laughs> that's not the real way. That's not the best way. That's not the way God's going to bless you. You experience frustration with self because you can't ever live up to God's law. Man, I failed again. I messed up at this again. Or bitterness towards God. Man, God, I just can't ever do it, can I, towards you? Forget you, man. I can't, I can't do this. All of us most likely have experienced that if we matured in Christ. Almost all of us experienced the, the impotence of the law in one form or another. Consider the law in all its forms, the actual law. For those of us who are not citizens of the Cayman Islands, consider permanent residency, the volunteer hours that you get to earn points for permanent residency here. So you can stay here longer. The idea is that you care enough, you're cheerful enough about the fair island that you want to give. So they make a law about it. Here's how you can earn points. Do you think that works? To make someone a cheerful giver? Of course not. That's why I hear people complain about, man, we have someone out here for PR. (laughs) Because laws can't produce the joy necessary to be a cheerful giver. We know this, the law of how you were brought up, tradition, the law of expectation from a friend, a spouse, a parent, or a pastor, the law of checklists for feeling like a whole person. If I do these things, I'll be complete and I'll be whole. The law of results. You know the number one reason, I realized that I've done some research, that teachers stop teaching, that social workers grow hardened and quit, philanthropists cease giving, pastors cease shepherding. It's not because of the time put in. It's not because of the hours. It's because they stop seeing results. They live according to that law. If I don't see the results, I'm not doing my job right. I'm not the right kind of person. The law will always frustrate. It can never produce generosity in our hearts. So finally, as a Christian, we turn back to the cross and we realize grace wasn't just for salvation. It was to go to every day of our life. Back to the cross. Our eyes are open to the same desperate need we had at first. We meditate on the forgiveness dispensed freely through Jesus Christ. We pray earnestly for the Spirit's refilling in our lives. And there's the steadiness to our discipline, a maturity to our joy. There's a divine love that keeps the embers of love for others burning. There's not so much that God's law becomes obsolete. But for those who are made right with Christ, we're no longer judged by it. 
Rules no longer rule us. They're no longer our destiny. The role of the law changes from standard by which we're judged to principle and pattern from where we can start. Law becomes a reference for responding to grace. As in, how, God, can I direct, can I channel your overflowing generosity towards me? Oh yeah, your pattern for giving. So thirdly here, we see the principles to channel generosity, which helps us make more sense of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Where the New Testament references principles of, of generosity, it goes further than law because Jesus goes further in generosity. So on one level, you're off the hook. You don't have to create a checklist. On another level, Jesus has been so extravagantly good to us, it's impossible to just meet the Old Testament requirement for giving. As you get to know Jesus, you get to see his love for you poured out. You can't just stay there with, here's my 10%. Give to the poor this year. Give to the church. You can't stay there. Not when Jesus has died for you. Not when the God of the universe has given himself for you. And so you Principle one, you give periodically, first fruits and last fruits, but also at every opportunity in between. So Paul says, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week. So there is a discipline to it. As you get your paycheck, give. Trusting that God's going to give you enough for the rest of the month. In verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8, Paul indicates that a pledge was offered a year ago by these people. It's appropriate sometimes to pledge, to think concretely, to resolve in your heart what you're going to give. Yes, but in between, give at all times and in every way. Right? 2 Corinthians 9.8. That grace may abound, not only to you, but then to other people. It's beautiful. We're so tempted to hoard because we won't have enough time, enough energy, enough for ourselves and then we're reminded in places like Titus 3.6 that the Holy Spirit has richly poured himself out to us through Jesus Christ. Richly. So give periodically. First fruits, last fruits, but also every opportunity in between. Give specifically to your pastors and to the poor, but check this out, also to yourself. Generosity overflows not only in one's local church, to the poor, but also to yourself. Galatians 6, 1 Timothy 5, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says this principle holds true. Pastors who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. Don't, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. A workman is worthy of his wages. It's right to help your pastors out in that way. And it's right to help the poor. Listen to what he says in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 8. I do not mean that others should be eased, you burdened, as a matter of fairness, your abundance should supply their need. Their abundance might supply your need one day. There might be fairness. So even the persons who get a lot should have nothing left over. The people who don't have much should lack nothing. That's the way it's supposed to work. Jesus says it's not only pleasing to God, but it's just smart investing. Because you store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You might invest in something here that has some return, but one day... It's going to be mowed over by North Sound. It's going to be gone. When you give generously, you yield immediate returns for eternity. Now is the dot. Eternity is the line. Live for the line. Three, give proportionally, according to income, but also bountifully, we read here. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, as he may prosper. New Testament encourages you to count proportionally, raise with prosperity, but then sow bountifully. 
I think it's the image of counting your seed, then you distribute it rightly, raise it according to prosperity, but sometimes you just liberally let it fly. You just let the seed go. Because God has done that to us and Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit through us. And you reap bountifully. What does that mean, by the way, to reap bountifully? We get a clue just a few verses later at the 9, verse 9, and verse 10. He who supplies the seed to the sower, bread for the food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, increase the harvest of your righteousness. It's not necessarily a harvest of more money, though it might be. Not necessarily a harvest, my brother Kyle was saying earlier, more time or talents, but a harvest of righteousness. When you respond to God's generosity with your generosity, the righteousness you are given by faith, the credit for Jesus' right living that you're given starts to show up in your character, in your person, to other people. In other words, righteousness moves from the inside out so that others begin to see it and say, man, that person reminds me of Christ. What a privilege that is. A bountiful harvest isn't more money. It's more Christ-likeness. Finally, give sacrificially past the pinch. Jesus says, anyone who cannot give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Yikes. God gives everything and owns everything. So the question isn't, God, what should I give to you? But God, what should I keep for myself? Because it's all yours. We see this on display in our very passage where these people, these Macedonians, give out of their poverty. How can poverty overflow, as it says in this passage? The key to answering this and to give sacrificially is chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to give out of when you have nothing. God is able to provide every need. Generosity as a Christian is absolutely more risky. You might leave your purse or your wallet empty. You might leave your bank account for dead. See, God takes our sacrifices and raises them from death. The more generous the sacrifice, the greater the resurrection. And we know this through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I hope this morning we see that you've always had a plan to be generous to us and to help us respond with generosity, to help us grow, to participate in your generosity. Not not as babies, not as bitter sort of teenagers, quote-unquote, in the Christian life, but as mature adults who get to be a part of what you're doing. I pray that more of us would just join the adventure of divine generosity and become part of who we are. Father, I pray that our giving wouldn't be ticking the boxes or just how we have to or just calculating something on a calculator or doing the same thing every month that we would always keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, right there on the cross, remembering, God, how you were so generous to us to liberate us from the punishment of the law, to liberate us from trying to live this Christian life by following a bunch of rules, by remembering, Jesus, how you liberated us from them so we might never be judged by them. So now we can look back and think, that was a pretty good idea. And now, because of what Jesus has done for me, I am empowered to actually do them. Thank you so much, King Jesus, for your generosity towards us. Help us respond with these principles to live out. In Jesus' name, amen.